Welcome to Episode 79 of the Steptoe CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you back from hiatus by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and uh, we're delighted to be back feeling energetic and enthusiastic, notwithstanding the fact that all the issues we'll be talking about are exactly the same issues we were talking about in July. <laughs> uh, I, but uh, uh, our guest for the day is going to be uh, a change of pace. Uh, Peter Warren Singer is the senior fellow at the New America Foundation, founder of a technology advisory firm called Neo Luddite, uh, uh, and was named by the Smithsonian Institution National Portrait Gallery as one of the hundred leading innovators in the nation. Um, so uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you, Peter. Uh, uh, Peter is going to be talking uh, as a change of pace, not about uh, uh, some dry cybersecurity issue, but about a novel he has written in the Tom Clancy tradition that uh, uh, dramatizes many of these issues by pitting the United States and uh, China in a Pacific and space war that... Um, we don't do so well. So welcome, Peter. Don't spoil it all for oh, us. Oh, I'm going to – listen, uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, total spoiler alert. We are going to get deep into some spoilers. You're supposed to say buy the book first, then spoiler alert. No, no, I, I, I'm excited to join you all, really. Thank it, you for it, having it's me. Great. It's great. It's, uh, you know, increasingly I feel that as a policy advocate, uh, it's only the stories I tell that anybody pays any attention to. So deciding to say I'm going to do a policy book that is nothing but stories and make it up, uh, great idea. Okay. Uh, we're also joined by our regular contributors, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Michael, uh, uh, what did you do during the hiatus? Uh, I did my bit to prop up the Greek economy by spending my tourist dollars there in uh, great sums. Actually, it wasn't too, not such great sums because things were relatively cheap. Yeah, I... I've talked to a couple of people who went there, and they said, unless you asked about it, you didn't hear about the crisis. But if you asked about it, you were going to get a 45-minute uh, uh, monologue. Yeah, well, that's that's the nature of a conversation with the Greek anyway. Um, <laughs> but I can say that since I'm half Greek, of course. Uh, no, it's true. I mean, if you were in, in tourist areas, you would not have noticed that there was anything going on. Uh, you know, that there was an economic crisis. Um, if you'd spent much time in Athens, you would have noticed it. Okay. And Jacob Weinstein, uh, Jason Weinstein is formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw uh, criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things. Now doing criminal civil litigation is here, uh, Jason, uh, hiatus. Yep, during which I apparently changed my name to Jacob. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's okay. So I, I did my best to prop up the economy of Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and then having succeeded there to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Whoa, all right. Uh, and uh, Alan Cohn, formerly with DHS, where he was the Assistant Secretary for Strategy Planning, Analysis, and Risk, and second in charge of the overall DHS Office of Policy. Now he's of counsel to Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, and uh, your vacation report, Alan? I was just down the road supporting the uh, the economy of Bethany Beach, Delaware, and then this past weekend took a took a short trip up to uh, to Bellport, New York, back up to the old country of Long Island. Ah, yes, okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holder of the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. I spent uh, part of the hiatus propping up the economy of Iceland, 
And believe me, um, uh, they know how to make you prop it up. Uh, it's 300,000 people who get tons of foreign visitors, and they view us all uh, akin to milk cows uh, uh, passing through. Uh, um, but uh, I'm, I'm writing up my experiences, uh, which featured uh, a 10-mile uh, hike, 3,000-foot climb into hypothermia, uh, where we got uh, uh, lost, no, no fault of ours, uh, in the snow fields, and wandered, um, getting colder and colder and more and more worried about whether we would survive uh, uh, for an hour or two uh, before finally uh, uh, reaching the hut. Uh, after that, great trip. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, uh, the uh, I want to try to summarize the themes from uh, uh, August. Uh, I think there are two or three things. Uh, one that's pretty obvious is the cybersecurity disaster just keeps getting more disastrous, uh, uh, and the climate for victims of those attacks just keeps getting worse. Uh, so we've had, like, breach losses, which used to be um, in the millions. Now people are stealing, just flat stealing, tens of millions of dollars. Some networking company uh, uh, lost uh, $50 million and got 20 of it back, uh, and we're pretty happy to have done that. Uh, uh, there's an insider, insider trading scheme that reached $100 million in criminal profits. These are really getting to be serious criminal drags on the economy. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, um, any sense about whether this is just the same old, same old, uh, but worse, or is there something new about them? Well, we were we were always in kind of a suspended reality land when we were when we were thinking about breach costs in the two million, three million dollar range. These are really the company's procedural costs. Yeah, notifying victims, getting credit monitoring. This had nothing to or, do or with the maybe paying off the class action bar. Exactly, exactly. So now what we're seeing are actual physical damages from breach. You know, the substantive costs. So you were talking about the Ubiquity Networks hack, uh, an email scam attack, right. uh, where people uh, impersonated employee emails and got, got money transferred overseas. And then the, the business wire, PR newswire, market wire uh, breaches. Um, but again, this is still theft. Mm-hmm. You know, it comes in a different, wrapped in a different package, but it, it's still theft. I mean, Sony estimated that the breach of its PlayStation network back in 2011 cost. You know, 171 million dollars. So, but that was because they had to shut down. That was all kind of the preventive and response cost, not what they lost. And that's what I think that that we're still just scratching the surface mm-hmm. at, which is okay. We know how to deal with. We know the procedural costs, and we can see what the what the costs of theft are. But the cost of the shutting down or the destruction of right. networks, Sony estimates that the. Uh, or the others estimate that the Sony hack in in December could cost a hundred million dollars. That's where I think we're going to need to look more and more. What are those costs, and and how do we how do we how do companies share the risk uh, associated with those costs as well? Well, so it, it looks as though uh, the plaintiffs bar and the FTC has an idea for how they should share the risk. They should just pay up and pay again. Uh, um, and we, we had a, some, some dis, uh, decisions over the uh, August break that certainly sounded a lot like uh, the climate for victims of these attacks had gotten worse. Uh, Jason, did you look at the Seventh Circuit's decision in the Neiman Marcus case, which looks to me as though it's 
siding with the most aggressive arguments of the plaintiff's bar. It, it is, and I know Michael looked at this too and may jump in. I, I think you can look for the, uh, the courts of the Seventh Circuit to be the uh, presumptive uh, filing location for most class actions related to data breaches for the time being. And the, the Seventh Circuit's decision in Neiman Marcus will now move to the top of the list of most frequently cited opinions by plaintiff's lawyers. So the, the court uh, overturned the district court's dismissal of the class action arising from the Neiman Marcus breach and, and held that the customers have standing to pursue uh, data breach-related claims based on the costs incurred to prevent identity theft uh, and to reduce the risk of identity theft and the risk of future harm. And in doing so, you know, the Clapper Amnesty International decision had been cited by uh, by breach victims to, to uh, get cases thrown out in standing grounds. And the Seventh Circuit didn't run away from Clapper. In fact, it embraced it and applied it. And what it said was that Clapper only precludes, was intended to preclude claims involving purely speculative or unsubstantiated harms. It wasn't a blanket preclusion on relying on future injury. And in this case, they said that that as so in, in Clapper, people didn't even know whether they were victims, whether right. they had been injured, uh, uh, whereas in Neiman Marcus, they knew that their stuff had been stolen. They just didn't know whether it was going to hurt them. Well, right. And, and you know, there were sort of two categories of, of potential harm. One is there were some number of customers, I think over 9,000 customers, who actually incurred fraudulent charges that had been reimbursed. The district court was dismissive of that since the, 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 uh, the, the charge had been reimbursed. The Seventh Circuit took a different view and said that those people still suffered a concrete injury. They still had to invest time and aggravation and, and money to get the situation resolved. They had to incur the cost of credit monitoring, that that was a concrete injury. As for those who had only faced a risk of harm, the court said that it, um, that risk of harm was sufficiently real to meet the certainly impending standard of Clapper. And the court noted that the purpose of the hack uh, was to steal identities and make fraudulent charges. And so it was a, it was a sufficiently real risk of harm that it, that it qualified under, under Clapper. It's what's less clear, you know, the plaintiffs, as plaintiffs do in these cases, also threw in the kitchen sink of potential harms, including uh, alleging that the loss of their information was an intangible commodity that that had monetary value, and, and claiming that they wouldn't have purchased or paid as much to purchase products from Neiman Marcus had they known that the information wasn't going to be secure. So that that last argument is the one that's been kicking around in the plaintiff's bar with enthusiasm because it makes everybody uh, it gives everybody a claim, even right. if it's only for twenty cents that they would have paid less for the product if they'd known it wasn't secure. Now it's less clear. The Seventh Circuit didn't need to address those because okay. it found standing otherwise, but it did it did make the observation that those claims sounded dubious. Um, but if the Seventh Circuit's analysis of the primary standing uh, uh, assertion holds up and is upheld by other courts, to you. you don't really every, even need every, to go there. Everybody whose data is taken can say, well, it was taken in order to uh, uh, do some harm to me, right. so there I am. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, those other sorts of claims had been concocted by the plaintiff's bark to get around Clapper and the, and the way it had been interpreted. So... Uh, if, if the primary ruling holds up, then, uh, as you guys said, plaintiffs don't need to rely on the intangible commodity theory or the benefit of the bargain theory. I, I guess the only silver, small silver lining is that the, the court was very focused on the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, the hackers here were focused on stealing uh, identity information for the purposes of identity theft. So this, so this ruling would not necessarily apply to the case of a lost laptop. For instance, if an employee loses a laptop, um, you know, the, the court, a court following this uh, rationale might not find standing because you don't know why the laptop was stolen. Somebody might have just wanted the laptop itself. And what um, a great so country. Uh, uh, our judges are so <laughs> smart. 
that they know exactly what's in the minds of criminals. It's, this is this is superb. Peter, did you have something you wanted to say? So I am not a lawyer, and, and nor will I try and play one on a podcast. But um, on on this topic, what's interesting, putting on my cybersecurity pundit hat, is when they've done surveys on the business side, asking executives of how they think about the costs of it. Um, they did one, and essentially, you know, they, they, when they think about the cost of a cyber attack, there's a couple core elements that go into it, and it's basically how long are we knocked offline, and how long do I have to pay the people who do cleanup on aisle seven? So essentially, the lawyers and the IT specialists. So the cost, when, we, when business folks think about it, is these two core elements. What's interesting is that um, only 38% of them think about the cost of a breach on their brand, and only 25% say the cost, uh, they weigh in things like loss of intellectual property. Right. And these, are, of course, are two you know, evolving areas. So on brand impact, on the customer side, uh, well over 70% of customers say that they'd rather not do business with a company that they don't tr- they don't think does well with their personal information. Yeah, I don't believe that. Well, I, I, you know, the, I, I, the point I, I, is we're seeing that evolve. And then, of course, how we think about the impact of IP theft is evolving. So just what I'm weighing in here with a non-law side is just like how attacks evolve our sense of the costs and what goes into them are changing too. I, I, well, the FTC is clearly trying to raise the costs of uh, having a successful uh, uh, attack on your network. Um, and they've run into a little bit of resistance. I won't describe it as a lot because they've basically made a lot of people lay down and take consent decrees for up to 20 years. But Wyndham Hotels um, has fought them Bitterly, and has gotten lots and lots of allies, uh, uh, and they got as far as the Third Circuit saying, uh, "We don't think the FTC has any standards, and and the idea that uh, uh, bad security is somehow an unfair or deceptive practice uh, uh, isn't good enough. You have to tell us what security standards you're holding us to." And uh, the Third Circuit. Uh, uh, I, I think it's it would be kind to the back of people's hands to say they gave the back of their hand to the uh, to Wyndham. They kicked Wyndham's butt around the corner uh, uh, courtroom. Uh, uh, Michael, what what was going on in that case, and and why do you think the Third Circuit was so dismissive of Wyndham's arguments? Uh, I think it's partly because Wyndham was a poor test case for for this view that the FTC had exceeded its authority because. Uh, at least if you accept the facts as, as they were before the court, uh, Wyndham failed to do some very basic things, uh, failed to have firewalls, didn't change default passwords, um, uh, didn't use encryption for information that was in transit, uh, you know, uh, sensitive financial information. And so when they went to the court and said, look, how are we supposed to know what the FTC thinks is going to be adequate? Um, and, you know, how, how can the FTC say that what we did was unfair? It was not really an appealing candidate to, to push that argument. If, if it had been a company that had really done some decent things for security, I think you probably wouldn't have seen such a dismissive uh, attitude from the, from the Third Circuit. So uh, that that makes sense to me. Uh, they they certainly made a meal of the idea that any idiot would know that uh, uh, you needed some security, and Wyndham evidently didn't realize that. That was the uh, uh, at least on this the current posture of the case that was uh, uh, the pitch. And I I note that, uh, and this is an interesting development, and it may be 
something that tells us something about the future. Morgan Stanley went through, they had a breach, they went through a, an extensive investigation, uh, um, and the FTC did not, decided not to seek a consent decree from Morgan Stanley, uh, uh, claiming that Morgan Stanley actually had a very robust security program, even though it failed. Uh, and maybe that's a, an indication that uh, when the FTC comes looking at uh, looking for you, you may be able to survive if you've really worked hard. Now, Morgan Stanley probably spends $100 million a year on security, so uh, a lot of people are going to say, I'd rather spend that on lawyers when the FTC shows up. Uh, and I who's to argue with that? <laughs> uh, but uh, I, it certainly sounds as though if you have really crappy security, uh, the FTC is not going to have a legal problem pursuing it. And that's, you know, that's consistent with what the commission has said. His, in public statements and speeches and, and whatnot, um, commissioners have said, look, it, we're, we're not uh, doing anything but going after low-hanging fruit at this point. You really have to uh, have failed to do some pretty basic things in order to get in our sites. And, and I think if you contrast these two cases, uh, they're supportive of what the FTC has said. Yeah. So I, I, I should say, I just came back from a hearing uh, where, uh, uh, on behalf of Phil Reitinger, I am litigating with the FTC over a FOIA request that Phil filed uh, asking for their security standards. Uh, uh, and after saying they had no responsive documents, we should go take a hike. Uh, uh, once we filed the lawsuit, they said, well, except for these 2,000 pages of documents that we're now going to uh, 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 present to you, and we were arguing that they hadn't even scratched the surface. Uh, uh, and their response was, um, Judge, we know you ordered us to produce them, but uh, first we would like to talk about whether we can impose uh, processing fees on Mr. Reidinger. Uh, um, and so we'll be litigating that. Uh, but Phil has written a, uh, an analysis of the 2,000 pages and posted it on his uh, uh, blog. So for those who have an interest in what the FTC's changing public description of its standards uh, has been uh, over the uh, the last 10 or 15 years, uh, uh, Phil Cyber is his um, uh, blog uh, uh, address, and it's, a, uh, it's an interesting read. All right. Uh, that's only one of the three issues that we intended to cover, so we're already behind. But uh, uh, I thought the other one was uh, uh, that we saw a lot of in August was uh, with uh, apologies to uh, John Dunn, uh, or maybe it's Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, the long withdrawing roar of 215 litigation continues as the privacy uh, groups uh, not content with having one in Congress are trying to kick the corpse of the 215 program in court, notwithstanding that it's about to disappear entirely. Uh, uh, and the D.C. Circuit has finally ruled on the case that was presented to them, the appeal from Judge Leon's uh, uh, exclamation point filled uh, attack on NSA and the program. And well, NSA won and Judge Leon lost, but I'm not sure I can say more than that. Michael, everybody wanted to talk about uh, whether there really was a case here, uh, and I, I still can't quite figure out where the three judges line up and what it means for the, uh, you know, the next six weeks of remand. 
It's it's really strange. I mean, the D.C. Circuit, uh, everybody thought was going to finally be the, the non-FISA court that would address the constitutionality of the program, and they didn't. They didn't address the merits at all. They just decided uh, that Clayman, or Clayman and his fellow plaintiffs had no, no standing, um, but they couldn't even agree on a rationale. So each of the three panel members issued his or her own opinion, um, and two of the judges said, well, he doesn't have standing to get an injunction, but he, he should at least be allowed to have discovery to see if he can es- gather enough facts to establish standing. So uh, it's, it was a very strange result. So they sent it back to Judge Leon to hold a little mini round of discovery to let claim and see if he can, he can acquire some facts to show that, in fact, he does have standing. And so now Judge Leon has held a hearing already, the purpose of which apparently was to give advice to uh, Larry Clayman about yeah, was, it was, how to it was, it was either a hearing or a pep rally. I wasn't sure which. <laughs> or, or a counseling session. He said, look, you should really go out and get a plaintiff from, from Verizon Business, not from Verizon Wireless, because that was part of the grounds on which the D.C. Circuit had decided. It said, look... Um, all we really know for sure is that Verizon Business was part of the 215 program, but all you plaintiffs are Verizon Wireless customers, so we don't know that your metadata has been taken. So Judge Leon said, well, Mr. Clayman, go get yourself a Verizon Business uh, uh, plaintiff. Uh, and he gave him some other advice as well and also said to the government, look, I don't want you to, to run out the clock here. I want to, de- I want to decide the merits of this case uh, before the the program expires, which is like November fifteenth or seventeenth, right? So he has surprisingly little time to 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 rule to kick the corpse of the program. Uh, I and and I have to say it's it, it did seem a little unseemly. Uh, you know, uh, this is the guy who uh, who wrote the uh, a, a remarkably drudgeish report or uh, drudge report ish uh, uh, opinion. So unseemly is not. Unknown to him, but uh, it was kind of remarkable to have a judge saying, "I have to decide this case before uh, it becomes moot." That just doesn't feel very judicial. Not, not at all. It is, it is really a remarkable uh, episode. I think in this, and we, we've seen decisions over the last decade uh, where district court judges, in particular, have really seemed to to be on a mission to to say that something in in the surveillance programs of the Bush administration and now the Obama administration are unconstitutional. But this one really takes the cake in terms of just giving uh, very explicit advice to plaintiffs about um, what they should do next. Well, and, and I guess the, the, the other um, – well, we, we should ask about the Second Circuit, but I cannot help observing that during August and, and a little bit before uh, uh, Rand Paul running on the anti-NSA uh, uh, platform has gone from second uh, in the Republican primary race to maybe not even making the cut uh, in the top ten. Uh, it's a complete collapse, uh, and um, uh, it shows just how little – Actual um, uh, attraction the Republican uh, uh, Party has to the arguments that he was making. There's a lot of noise there, but maybe not much support. Uh, uh, meanwhile, the Second Circuit, um, other kind of uh, um, sore winners have gone back to the Second Circuit and said, we'd like you to issue an injunction uh, against the program, uh, even though you've already sent it back to the 
district court to see if an injunction should be uh, granted. Uh, again, I, I'm kind of puzzled about what the theory is of getting that forum to address the issue when it's really something they it sounded like they had decided they wanted the uh, district court to decide. Yeah, it's interesting because there it's it's a real contrast between Judge Leon and the Second Circuit panel because the Second Circuit, as our listeners will, will recall, actually ruled that the program was illegal, that it was inconsistent with Section Section 215 itself, but the court declined to issue an injunction, I think because it recognized that the statute was going to be changed, even though it hadn't yet been, I think, when it issued its, its merits ruling. Uh, and it's very reluctant to get involved in what is a, very much a political process, even if uh, it, it thinks the program was illegal. And so at, at the hearing, the, the panel members were expressing real reservation about whether this was an appropriate exercise of their discretionary power uh, at this point in time, given that we've only got two months left of this program. So uh, it's just a, a, a very uh, illustrative uh, or illuminating contrast, I think, in, in what the judges see as their their role. Yeah, and I th- remember their their decision was not constitutional, it was statutory, and they based it on the argument that there had never been a debate in which people passed the statute knowing what the program was, uh, which you certainly cannot say about the program since the passage of the USA Freedom Act, which said, yes, you can continue this for six months, and we know exactly what you're doing. We don't like it for the long term, but we want to keep it in place for six months. That's what they decided. I, I think the Second Circuit would have to rewrite its opinion to say that it's still illegal. I think you're right, and that's probably uh, weighing at least in the back of their minds, if not in the in the forefront, because um, it'd be hard to see how they how they could not deal with that issue and yet still uh, reach the same result. All right, uh, last topic that we're going to cover uh, is the continued messy fight over location data, the warrant requirement, uh, and stingrays. Uh, uh, um, Jason, we've had some developments all kind of leaning toward more warrants for location, right? Yeah, so just when you thought it was safe to go back to 2703D, the Fourth Circuit says it's not. So, you know, listeners of the podcast will recall that there had been a split in the circuits between the 5th and the 11th. The 5th had said no warrant was required for historical cell site data. The 11th in a panel decision said that a warrant was required. Earlier this year, the en banc 11th reversed the panel. And so the 11th and 5th were both lined up saying, with the district court in the Graham case, uh, the Fourth Circuit case, all saying that no warrant was required. But now the Fourth Circuit has reintroduced the circuit split by reversing the district court and saying that, in fact, a warrant is required. And this is also further proof that this is not your Father, mother, even older brother or sister's Fourth Circuit. When oh, I was yeah, at, they totally switched. Yeah, when, when I was in ASA in Maryland, the Fourth Circuit was a reliable home court. Right. Uh, the, the plaintiffs, uh, the, the, the prosecutor and the defense would walk into an argument in the Fourth Circuit with varying degrees of confidence in the outcome. <laughs> and now I think that is it, 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 at least evening out, if not reversing. So uh, in the Graham case, uh, the government had collected over 220 days' worth of historical cell tower information in an armed robbery case. A routine practice uh, mm-hmm. using a 2703D order where you have enough evidence to meet that standard, which is roughly equivalent to reasonable suspicion. Um, district court denied the motion to suppress. The Fourth Circuit reversed. And the Fourth Circuit said, uh, importantly, number one, that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in that data and basically relied on uh, the, uh, an array of previous tracking cases, including the Jones case, uh, to hold that if you track someone's location inside a constitutionally protected space, or if you track them over an extended period of time, 
that creates a, a, a violation of a privacy interest. And here the court said that 221 days of historical tracking that potentially included tracking in private spaces was enough to implicate this was cell the Fourth Amendment. Data, right? This is cell tower well, data, and it's I, well, old cell no tower data. There's no way they can, they can say, oh, would they, we've placed you inside some private uh, home. All you know is you're in a little sector, this, this sort of uh, segment of uh, uh, a wedge-shaped segment. That's uh, right. And even in an urban area, even in an urban area, there, yeah. there's a limit to the, to the range of it. The court also, um, and this is where I think the shark may have been jumped, uh, rejected the application of the third-party doctrine and said that the information was not voluntarily conveyed or really conveyed at all by the phone uh, by the user to the phone company, that the phone company collects it and winds up in the phone company's records, but not through any action by the user. That is a questionable definition of voluntariness oh, yeah. at best. Well, you know, your, your, your phone wouldn't work if you didn't right. tell the, the cell towers where you were. Right. Uh, but it's not voluntary. It's just the phone decided to do it. Apparently. Right. You don't need an engraved invitation to the phone company permitting them to collect your data. If you're voluntarily using the phone, understanding that the data has to be transmitted for the phone to work, yeah, I'd I, I would argue I, that's I'd voluntary. I'd say the Fourth Circuit is definitely switched sides. <laughs> now, interestingly, has, as with the Eleventh Circuit case, has no impact on the defendant. Uh, uh, who's in front of the court because the court held that the good faith exception to the warrant requirement permitted the evidence to get in. But it has tremendous implications for the law going forward. And and most immediately, um, barring some congressional resolution, which, of course, would never happen since it's the United States, um, (laughs) uh, uh, a bunch of privacy groups have gotten together and asked the Supreme Court to review that 11th Circuit en banc decision um, in the Davis case. Uh, and now the Fourth Circuit creating the split again really creates more momentum for a potential Supreme uh-huh. Court review. Huh. And, uh, uh, Michael, uh, the Justice Department's also weighed in with what looks to me like a sort of similar uh, uh, determination, uh, saying you need uh, a, uh, a warrant to, to run these stingrays that, that pretend to be cell towers and gather the location data of individuals. Uh, um, I, I didn't read the guidance. I don't know if you did. Uh, uh, how significant is it going to turn out to be? I think this is pretty significant. I mean, especially when you combine it with the Fourth Circuit's uh, decision on, on historical cell site data. Uh, essentially, this means um, that... Uh, Federal investigators are likely to use warrants anytime they're going to try to get location data, whether it's using a GPS tracking device, cell site location data, or a stingray. Uh, and this was a voluntary policy decision by DOJ. DOJ. It's similar to DOJ's decision that it's going to use a warrant to get any sort of communications content, even if uh, the Stored Communications Act would allow them to use some lesser form of process, like a, a 2703D order or a subpoena. Uh, and so I think um, things seem to be coming together now where you have more courts and now DOJ itself saying, yeah, we think we think we really should use a warrant to get location data because um, that's probably where the jurisprudence is headed. So Jason, Jason was there uh, recently kind of uh, in, in charge of some criminal division uh, uh, units. Uh, what does the debate how does the debate play out about doing something like this? Well, just to put this in perspective, you know, there's three types of location information. There's precise location information, right. what you'd think of as GPS, pinging of the phone, to determine its actual location, perspective use of cell towers, uh, historical use of cell towers, and then stingrays are a fourth category altogether. Um, for as long as I can remember, for precise location information, the department's been getting a warrant. 
Um, So there's no change there. For prospective cell tower information, since about the mid-2000s, it's it's increasingly been the case, and now it's almost uniformly the case, if not uniformly the case, the government's been getting a warrant. The the sea change is in historical cell tower information because uh, the statute provides really quite clearly that you can get that through a lesser standard. Now that's going to change. As Michael said, I think that the the change in policy on stingrays coupled with with you know the change in policy on historic uh, uh, cell tower data is uh, reminiscent of the change on on content um, I think that there you know there's been tremendous press attention play, uh, paid to abuses uh, alleged abuses of the use of stingrays I would point out that that most if not all of those abuses are at the local level and this policy change does nothing to affect the way local law enforcement state law enforcement uses the devices. It will affect the secrecy restrictions that have been placed on local police. And the FBI was the source of the stingrays in many cases, if I remember, and they imposed a whole set of requirements on law enforcement about secrecy uh, in describing uh, how they got the information. Uh, There's nothing in the the new policy that will require the FBI to say, and by the way, we want you to get a warrant? Well, the Deputy Attorney General has said uh, in a statement when the, the new policy was introduced that uh, the federal law enforcement would no longer be imposing those secrecy requirements mm-hmm. on local law enforcement. But the use of the, the devices by local law enforcement and the evidentiary threshold they have to meet before they get a local judge to approve it, I think is much more of an issue. Because even if the feds are requiring a warrant, in, in, unless there's a change in local law or local practice, uh, there's the, still the potential for abuse by local law enforcement. I also think that uh, the stingrays are used in a much smaller percentage of cases than cell tower records. Cell tower records have become like oxygen. Right. You know, they're the bread and butter of a modern criminal investigation for crimes of all types, armed robberies, violent crimes, electronic crimes, financial crimes. Uh, determining someone's approximate location is as important to ruling suspects out as it is to ruling suspects in, and it's a building block for getting probable cause. It's mostly – a lot of the use was by the Marshal Service, which tells you they're looking for uh, people who for ran fugitives. away. Right. Uh, and uh, and they need it right now, and this, is, this tells you now here is where he is uh, uh, in a way that uh, uh, the historic data wouldn't tell you. So uh, you can – you can regulate that, and you probably have a better story going for a warrant. You say, "Well, this guy's a fugitive. Uh, what else? Why else will we? You know, what else do we need for probable cause to, to find out where he is?" That's right, and and you you almost by definition have probable cause, if not by definition, when you're looking for a fugitive, uh, especially if it's someone who's already charged or or someone who's actually been, uh, you know, you're actually looking uh, to to lock up who has already been convicted. Um, I, I I do think. You know, DOJ deserves great credit. I think the the policy change is a is a smart one, but it's also one that they frankly had no choice but to implement. There, you know, the the media attention about the use of stingrays has been uh, terrible. Has actually affected the degree of congressional interest in the use of the technique. Mm-hmm. And I think that that this is a, a, a smart policy that also prevents um, you know other. Uh, changes being imposed on them. Yeah, they're just afraid of Rand Paul. Who's afraid of Rand Paul now? Well, but it may still be just the 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 tip of the iceberg if you trace it all the way back to the Supreme Court's Riley decision and and really making uh, causing I think what's going to be a sea change in in the way all these things that touch your cell phone yeah. are interpreted in, in all of these different ways. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, for sure. Uh, I don't think the court is going to. There, I'm not sure they're going to go there. Uh, get rid of the third-party doctrine. Uh, and if they do, they aren't going to like the result, I predict. But uh, uh, they clearly are tempted. To, uh, and uh, we're going to see more of that. Did, one last question. 
Baltimore has thousands of cases. Uh, uh, what does this mean for all those cases? Nothing in theory, but uh, in practice, it's going to be ugly. Well, for, for once, the Balt- local Baltimore prosecutors' very low conviction rate works in their favor. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, hopefully no one in Baltimore at the local level is listening to this. But the, So the fact that the, the technique's been used in 2,000 cases... Uh, only a small fraction of what's a result of it. Right. <laughs> exactly. So at least they don't have quite as many convicted uh, defendants' cases to review. But uh, a bunch of defense lawyers led by the federal, the local public defender have said they're going to review over 1,900 cases in which the technique was used. Baltimore uh, was one of those local jurisdictions that got a lot of press attention for uh, uh, you know failure to disclose to the court that the technique was being used and and the, the broad use of the technique, I, I would suggest much broader than it's used at the federal level. Um, and so we'll see what happens with these cases. But uh, there aren't as many defendants in jail as a result of the technique as there are cases in which the technique was used. All right. Uh, well, let's let's turn to our guest, uh, Peter Singer, uh, who has written a uh, book, uh, a novel of the next world war called Ghost Fleet, uh, uh, available on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, and clearly, you know, if you like Tom Clancy, you're going to like this book. I, I, it's very much an homage to Clancy uh, and an up dating of Clancy, but the basic idea of telling uh, dramatic military stories that um, build on just the outer edge of what's possible with today's technology, uh, uh, that approach from Clancy is clearly what uh, uh, you adopted here, Peter. Uh, uh, and as again, I warn people, uh, I, um, I'm going to talk about uh, spoilers because the most interesting stuff here is part uh, is is uh, part of the plot, uh, um, and. Uh, the parts I want to talk about in particular, uh, we didn't talk much about the fact that the OPM uh, hack continues to resonate, that the president, uh, the administration is busily leaking how tough they're going to be with she uh, when he arrives here for the summit and the possibility of sanctions, which, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do it after he leaves. Uh, but, you know, we'll see if they actually uh, uh, do produce sanctions. Uh, but, you know, some of the stories are that uh, the Chinese and the Russians are taking the OPM data and jointly exploiting it to try to find uh, American spies. Uh, uh, so let me start with that. This is not quite in your book, although your book is full of cyber uh, security and cyber war issues. Uh, do you believe that uh, the Chinese and the Russians are jointly exploiting the OPM data? I was thinking it was going to be a different kind of jointly exploiting it, where it's the OPM data and the Ashley Madison uh, data, where um, now I can find out not just who's been um, playing in areas that they shouldn't, according to their spouse, but I can connect it to who they work with. Um, uh, Look, we, on one hand, there's the logic that China and Russia should, by kind of the classic rules of international relations, be adversaries. Um, they're great powers that share a border. Right. And yet that's not is what that's not what's happening. Um, they're clearly uh, 
becoming deeper and deeper allies in all sorts of meanings of the term. Um, most importantly, after the Ukraine land grab with our sanctions, one of the effects of it has been to push uh, Russia a little bit closer um, and everything from energy deals to cybersecurity. Um, by my count, and this is uh, maybe a low count, they've signed 34 different agreements of some sort. So the idea that they may be jointly exploiting um, information in a espionage sense um, is not out of the question given well, that they're doing it, it other isn't, isn't their relationship to China a little like the UK's relationship to the US in the 50s and 60s? They're really only a world power when aligned with an, a, 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 an unquestioned world power. Uh, so so in, in, the, in the book, you know, the book, again, not to give the plot away, but it essentially explores the what if, what if there was a war between the great powers of the 21st century, the US and China, and China's junior partner that doesn't realize it's the junior Russia, is right. the way we joke about oh, it. And you, actually, I, I will say that I, I really very much enjoyed your little kind of uh, tweak of Putin, where you have him showing up at a meeting with the, the successors of the uh, um, communist uh, rulers. Uh, playing uh, games on a tablet uh, uh, that are designed to keep him mentally sharp because he's you know, still physically fit but losing it mentally uh, uh, and, of course, still in power because he's never going to give it up. Uh, uh, I thought that was that was only a paragraph, but what a nice little paragraph it was. Hey, well, thank you. And it actually hits you know, a, a bigger point to talk about here, which is um, – so the book is fiction, but it comes with, as you mentioned, um, essentially 400 endnotes documenting how every single technology, every single trend, even some of the things that the characters say are pulled from the real world. And that led you know a lot of people to ask well you know why uh why write a novel you're you're a you're a wonk and your last book was cybersecurity, and you just hit one of the reasons of it is that in fiction you can sometimes with a single sentence or a single paragraph yes yeah, say the truth in a way you couldn't with a with a whole monograph exactly and, and that's one of you know a very small detail of sort of pointing of uh, a, not the only, but a potential future of Russia and Putin. Um, but the same thing you mentioned, you know, who his counterparts on uh, the Chinese side. You know, we have this discussion around China that it's either it's always going to be the same communist China or it's going to collapse. And then, of course, democracy will follow. And we play with an, another alternative, which is, you know, China a global power, a more confident power in everything from business to politics to military, um, the connection of cybersecurity issues to that. And where does that lead where you see, for example, um, a new kind of elite there, a business elite, a military elite that doesn't fit with our concepts of communism. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in many ways, uh, and we play with this in, in the book, you know, uh, cybersecurity is an element of this where we see a China that's um, mercantilist uh, in many ways. Uh, it's it's nationalist. It's right. blending those together. This is a fight over resources, uh, essentially, uh, and a limited strike designed to push us way back but avoid a nuclear war. Exactly. And and um, the model of the book is, you know, you mentioned the Tom Clancy side. Uh, it's 
Clancy, you know, we, we grew up, uh, my, my co-author August and I, and neither one of us are, you know, fiction authors by training, so to speak. August was uh, the defense beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where on the cybersecurity side, for example, he was the reporter who broke the story about uh, the F-35 project right. being hacked on three separate occasions. Um, but so we did share a love of, you know, we grew up reading the Tom Clancy's. Yeah, of I have to it. say, I, I hated it when I read that. Uh, you know, you talk about sitting in the back seat of the station wagon, reading the book on the way to the beach with your parents driving. I read those when I was an adult. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but at least we, we shared, you know, early Clancy, the good stuff. But so the model, though, is to not follow. It's a specific book in that series. It's the Red Storm Rising right. book. Um, or another parallel would be Winds of War, War and Remembrance by Herman Wouk or uh, Game of Thrones. And by that, I mean um, not following a single character, but multiple characters in multiple locations. And here it comes back to the cybersecurity side of it, which is that it's not only, you know, I enjoyed those style of books a little bit more, but also it shows how a conflict between great powers or frankly even weak powers in the 21st century it would play out in multiple domains mm -hmm. and so you would see battles in everything from land air sea but also space and cyberspace and then you'd see a whole host of new actors in all of these locations from the ones that you know we all expect the the jet fighter pilots navy ship captains to the ones that we don't but we should expect Chinese uh, university cyber militia, anonymous hackers, um, private military contractors. These are all players in 21st century well, conflict and, and today. You, you, yes. And yet we don't, we don't think about them in our one yet. They will play a role. And you did you, – you, you, you dragged all of those guys in and, of course, uh, uh, Silicon Valley is sort of saying, well, you know, we're going to try to keep our distance from uh, the U.S. government uh, until it turns out that um, uh, one of the uh, brilliant and quirky uh, uh, Aspie sort of uh, um, founders says, wait a minute, if you gave me a letter of mark, I could capture a bunch of these assets on my own using a bunch of uh, hackers and technologists. Uh, uh, it's sort of plays with that. There's, there's two storylines we're playing with there. One is the um, – this very uh, interesting um, class of tech billionaires who uh, love doing their own things right. and have their fascinations, and one is in you know space. <clears throat> What are they going to do? Um, and it plays with some things in law that are still there of uh, letters of mark still are legal. Um, but then there's another storyline that plays with, you know, what would the Silicon Valley side, um, what would a new kind of Manhattan project look like? And, and, and it would look like or, most or likely. you say, smell like. Smell like. <laughs> and, and it would be, it would more likely be software. Right. Uh, and it would bring a whole new class of players in and be in locations um, that, you know, wouldn't be off in the desert. It'd be in, you know, the, the smell for people is the smell of what does a startup actually smell like and it basically smells like um, pizza and money uh, well and, and, and not and, enough and, and not enough showers yes yeah. I, I think that's that's probably right uh, um, so um, you, you there's there's a lot of cybersecurity in this uh, I thought the most interesting and compelling and persuasive uh, discussion of it was when they talked about how the chips in all the new fighters uh, um, had been checked to make sure that they couldn't be shut down by a remote uh, signal, uh, even though they were bought from suppliers that had ties to China. Uh, but they hadn't realized that if you 
sent a targeting signal to uh, Adajet that some of the chips that were there would say, ah, at last, uh, uh, the call from home, it's time for me to start sending out a tracking signal of my own so that the missiles can find me. So we're on what what podcast number here? Uh, uh, 79. So we've had 79 on um, essentially the software side. Mm-hmm. And the problem is compared to the hardware side, that's the easy part. It is. That's the right. Because hard- you can read the software. Yeah. The, the hardware hack side is um, put by one intelligence official is the problem from hell. Um, and in comparison to cybersecurity. And by that, it's everything from um, we've lost control of the design side, mm-hmm. the manufacturer side, but also um, you can bake in the vulnerabilities in a way that um, essentially it's almost uh, well nigh impossible to screen for them. It's incredibly difficult. And this is, you know, applies not just to the commercial side, but to major weapons platforms. Uh, for example, the Joint Strike Fighter, the F 35. Uh, well over um, 80% of the microchips in it are made in China and Taiwan. Oh, by the way, the nation uh, that it might be operating against. And those can um, those chips, there can be nothing wrong with them or there can be something wrong with them. And it might be that they're hackable. It might be that they have a kill switch. It might be something that only activates on a specific in a day, dogfight. at a specific day or time, or right. maybe a very specific uh, radio wave goes over it. And so it's, you know, the problem of not just finding a needle in a haystack, as one of the characters puts it, it's finding a needle in a haystack full of needles. Right. And again, you know, this is, this is not theoretic. That, that um, section of the book, we're footnoting everything from DARPA reports to um, popular science to military articles. And, you know, for this is the military side of it, for the sci-fi fans, Essentially, what you're laying out there is the possibility of the opening scene of Battlestar Galactica, the the TV series, happening in reality. Mm -hmm. An entire class of um, weapon basically being taken out by a kill switch. You had a – again, you summed it up nicely with a little vignette of uh, uh, toddlers all across America handing in their little electronic toys so that the – chips could be salvaged from it because our overseas suppliers weren't supplying anymore and we wanted to repurpose them for future weapons. That was kind of uh, uh, a a nice touch. Thank you. And and it's, again, one of the fun things of this and and the real issues to wrestle with is when you start to think about um, great power competition uh, and maybe even conflict, it's something that we – um, haven't really uh, occupied ourselves with for the last, you know, roughly 15, 20 years. You know, the 20th century is defined by these great power conflicts, the two world wars that happened, the third one that, you know, was always that fear that never happened, um, the Cold War stayed cold. But so we have these issues, these questions there, and um, in some ways there's similarities to the past, other ways there's differences. And one big difference of a competition with China versus the Soviet Union is our um, – integration with them on the trade front, Mm -hmm. but also our dependence on them for uh, all sorts of parts of the supply chain. And some people believe that creates a whole new kind of vulnerability. 
Other people argue that that's exactly why we would never go to war. Don't give me and, a break. And, and, well, that, that's, and so we actually use two characters to have that argument right. um, there. But this, this point of uh, you know, how would you deal with this in a conflict setting? What are the workarounds? And the workarounds are everything from we're going to be scouring old things for chips to this is the potential of something like 3D printing that may actually be this incredibly disruptive force for the economy, let alone if you have a right. conflict. You can do you can bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Well, that's the name. The name of the book is Ghost Fleet, and uh, um, the Ghost Fleet is the flo- the fleet that has been put into basically mothballs, uh, and for that reason doesn't have the latest buggered chips in it and therefore has some hope of succeeding in our last gasp effort to uh, push back the uh, the Chinese advance, which includes uh, uh, some dramatic scenes in Hawaii. So the Ghost Fleet, again, is a real-world thing. It's the nickname for um, the National Defense Reserve Fleet, which are the old retired Navy ships that we keep just in case. It's the Navy's version of the um, Boneyard. Some people may be familiar with the Air Force uh, Boneyard out in the desert where all the old warplanes are kept. And that was actually the starting um, sort of spark for the book for August and I was, why do we actually keep these old ships, these old warplanes around? What could ever cause you to bring these back? Right. And then, of course, you get to have the fun of, well, if you did need to bring them back, how would you integrate them? And not just the old gear, but you know, you have the different generations coming together, and um, so that's a lot of the fun. And then, as you hit it, you're taking you then take the conflict and have it play out in different locations. So some of it's in cyberspace. Another track came from interviews with um, U.S. special forces, and it was basically playing with uh, an insurgency, but not how would we fight against insurgents, but what have our forces learned from the other side over the last 10 years? Yeah, How would we I, do in I, I have to say that was the part – there was a place I didn't find it when I went back to look where you kind of imply that the Chinese have all these international law of war combatant, illegal combat, unlawful combatant uh, problems. I don't think they're going to have that. If they if they had an insurgency that they had to put down, they're just going to kill a whole lot of people. And so you've got those you've got those characters on that side, kind of having that argument of, and and again, the same kind of arguments that happened within um, the U.S. of some people basically saying just suppress it as hard as you can, um, kill, capture, go after leaders, break it up. Other people arguing, okay, no, 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 win hearts and minds. But then, how do you, can you win hearts and minds amongst a populace that basically just hates you and will always see you? as alien um to the flip side uh i think you know we play with what tactics do we now think are illegal and violations of the laws of war that if the shoe was on the other foot we might adopt them and it gives you you know there's a very powerful moment i think in the book where um they're hiding weapons in a school and one of the u.s soldiers is saying you know uh why are we doing this it's going to cause civilian casualties and the other one's saying yeah exactly that's the point (laughs) and again you know, yeah. this is not, not not us making up. It's taken from interviews with our special forces on you know, kind of what are they learning from the other side? How would these things flip? And again, there's a there's a, a bigger issue here that connects to whether it's issues of cybersecurity to the use of robots in war. It's all about how um, the laws of war are they evolve and they're also context dependent. So a great illustration of this would be. Um, uh, aerial bombing 
and the definition of the home front, um, what targets are allowed or not. That, mm-hmm. that was influenced by the rise of the airplane. To the submarine was once a science fiction technology. At one point in time, the U.S. found it absolutely horrible to use submarines against civilian shipping. It's why we join World War I. Right. Then Pearl Harbor happens. It takes us six hours to change our minds. Right. Yes, I, 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 all that makes sense. So uh, there's a bunch of uh, uh, drones in this, or at least uh, uh, helicopter drones that uh, uh, do some of the uh, fighting on behalf of China. Were they meant to be completely autonomous? Uh, uh, so they were learning machines. They were hunting people uh, and killing them without anybody guiding them. So just like every single one of the um, cyber attacks that play out, uh, and we document a real-world version of it, uh, and that that created some some great fun of um, I had an opportunity to brief the book inside a U.S. intelligence agency where I explained that my upcoming novel would reveal how that building could be hacked. And then like everything else uh, in the space, uh, I could blame um, Edward Snowden for these uh, tactics being out there in the wild for other so people you, to utilize. And you described that say, here where a gardener uh, with no clearances, not it was illegal if I remember, uh, uh, looks at his phone and he's looking at his phone when somebody walks by with a RFID chip in there. It's basically ID. showing how you can and you can just jump hops, exactly. It looks for that for that kind of RFID, hops into it, and hops from that into the system and uh, drops. Uh, you know, uh, wanders from place to place without actually making changes, trying to look. Um, relatively innocent and inert until the moment comes to to open up. Yeah, so there's two elements to that, again, on the real-world side. It's one, showing how air gaps are not the defense that too many people think they are, and there's ways to uh, go over through them, etc. And then the second is um, certain ways of operating inside a network that won't trigger all the uh, normal alarms. And again, things that we have shown uh, that now um, others might do against other parts of the, the U.S. government apparatus that aren't as well defended. But sorry, so the point is, you know, again, whether that's on the cyber side to your question on the drone side, every single one of the drones that appear in um, the book is drawn from a real world project. And with autonomy, um, some of them are more fully autonomous to other ones that are remote operation, just like what's happening in the real world. And what's, again, to me interesting on the legal side of this is that we've had this big uh, letter writing campaign from various activists and scientists saying, you know, don't work on killer robots. Don't work on AI. Right. Um, it's, it's over. It's too late. That's In the book, it's a novel, but it documents 21 different projects where we're already working on them right now. And it's everything from, you know, drones that take off from aircraft carriers to submarine hunting ones. Not that we're dreaming up, but no, here's the documentation. Here's how it would be used in battle. So letter writers, if you want to ban this under the law – you're going to have to ban these 21 specific ones. Stop talking about this as this big what if. Here's where we are already right now. So you settled a lot of scores in this, I thought. Uh, uh, you have NATO, 
bailing out on us at the first opportunity uh, with the Europeans saying, oh, never mind, that NATO thing probably wasn't a good idea. The Japanese kind of cleaning up our bases and then throwing us out. Uh, uh, and uh, my, my, my favorite was where the, uh, the polls come and say, uh, look, we're really on your side. Uh, uh, we're glad to supply some technology you don't have if you could just give us 10 or 20 nukes and we do it. Uh, or the uh, the green, new the green, new lend lease plan. Yeah, no, and yeah. I, and I, I but it plays it's with you know totally real. It's okay. the <laughs> idea of, of Poland looking at its face in a new Europe and going, you know what? These security guarantees from Germany. Yeah, yeah we're, we, we've we just we've, bailed out on NATO. We've yes. gone through yeah. that, but you know, it's funny thing. I, I we um, we've gotten really really great kind reviews from just a wide range of areas, but there was one pushback by someone in um, uh, they were in Belgium, and they said, you know. Um, I just don't buy this scenario that NATO wouldn't um, stick with the U.S. in, in a world war. And I pushed back and I said, you know, hold it. A world war in the 2020s in the Pacific that's gone badly for the U.S., you think Belgium's going to send forces to fight China? I said, what about now? Yeah. Something now Staying that hasn't gone bad badly in the South China Sea. Now you're going to send? And they, they kind of went, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I, I thought that was right. And, and you know, remembering the history of how Iceland became independent, uh, there's this nice point where we discover we have one icebreaker and we're about to uh, have a naval engagement in the Arctic. Uh, and we go to Greenland and say, you've got nine. How would you like your independence guaranteed by us? Uh, a, a, a nice... Uh, and, and, and that, you know, again, came from a real-world interaction with actually um, parliamentarians from Denmark and Greenland and um, noticing how essentially their relationship has changed over kind of roughly the 15 years where for, you know, the history of Denmark and Greenland, um, Greenland was like this this colony that was a drag on the economy. And then over the last decade, Greenland looked around and went, hold it. We've got as much oil, oh, natural gas line, and yeah. minerals uh, that's being revealed by global warming and, and discovered and like that if we were independent, we would be probably the world's richest state. We'd be basically like one of these petro states. So in the when, I was, when I was in Iceland, we were walking around. We were kind of lost uh, before we got really lost. Uh, and uh, we ran into this guy guy and said, which is the right direction? And he pointed us out and he said, where are you from? We're from the United States. And he said, oh, I love the United States. You gave us our independence. Who knew, right? But apparently in the middle of World War II, uh, Denmark obviously was occupied and we we needed Iceland as a... And uh, we stepped uh, in to uh, protect, right, and, but and, it was really to keep Germany from taking right. and also... Well, you know. the, the, the Brits had already stepped in, but yeah. they couldn't really enforce exactly. it. So we took it over from them and the Brits had no problem with colonies. But we did. So we uh, essentially freed Iceland up. So this was there's an echo of history in your in your piece. So the other scores that I thought you settled is uh, this is a big Navy book. The, the, the Navy comes off. It's it's a heroic naval Navy wins the war kind of thing with a uh, a bit part by the Air Force, and I didn't see the Army anywhere. Is, is that your view of how the, the, the future of war will play out? Well, you know, let me be clear. So uh, there is an Air Force role, and it, uh, one of the Navy pilots was very angry that an Air Force pilot saves the day in one of the battles. Again, not ruining <laughs> uh, but Believe but, me, the, the Navy <laughs> yeah, he was like, very this, well this, He was like, I loved your book except this one plot point. <laughs> um, uh, 
there is a role for ground forces in it, but it it's it's There's that scenes with the, with the 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 script flipped where it's more about the insurgency and from the other side. But again, it it reflects the reality of if there was a war in the Pacific. Um, it wouldn't be a, a ground-centric campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, we're certainly uh, not, and I hope we would not, um, going to commit to a land invasion of China. That's a, that's a quick way to a loss. Um, and so it would be, you know, just by the sheer geography, it would be something that would involve um, sea, air, space, cyberspace in a greater way. Then again, what we're what we're writing against is the perceptions of war that have been created by roughly the last 15 years of war where um, it's, they've been ground centric. And I I shouldn't even say um, last 15 years. It's really, you know, when you think about it, pull back, we haven't fought a major battle at sea for 70 years. We haven't fought a major battle against a peer in the air for 70 years. So our assumptions of war um, are mainly that it's ground, that air air and sea play a role, but it's supporting. And it's also um, what – and this is something, again, that I think relates back to the cyber side – the We've always had a generation ahead of technologic advantage for the last 70 years. Um, really, it, it's only the end of World War II where you know the Germans introduced things like jet aircraft. Right. Like That's the last time someone um, was equal or better than us in tech. Well, now moving forward, because of everything from um, what's happening on the commercial sector to intellectual property theft mm-hmm. via cyber attacks, U.S. forces will be going into battle – against adversaries that will have technology as good or even in some cases better than them. Right. That's a, just a massive change to wrap our heads around. And, and, and sort of to close it up, what's the, the fundamental assumption of the book is that there will be significant all-out conflicts between the regular forces of the great powers um, – that don't that don't go nuclear, uh, and that's contrary to the last seventy years when it's mostly been proxy fights between uh, um, uh, great powers. Do you actually foresee and why um, direct conflicts between the United States, China, uh, Russia? Uh, and I'm running out of great powers, maybe Japan in the long run, uh, um, and perhaps uh, uh, somebody in Europe. Uh, do you actually foresee that happening? I do not think that war between the great powers is inevitable. I do not. I will note, for example, that um, People's Daily wrote that, quote, a U.S.-China war is inevitable, end quote, mm-hmm. going on to say, well, it, unless the U.S. doesn't change its behavior. Right. Um, and again, that was you know uh, posturing for our policymakers, their audience. But um, So I do not think it is inevitable. I do think, however, unfortunately, that the 21st century um, will see great power rivalry. And just like in the 20th century, there's a risk of conflict, and that conflict could be something that starts – accidentally mm-hmm. two warships scraping paint over a reef that isn't on an article chart or it could be something that's deliberate it's also i think um conflict uh there we're already kind of seeing this there's um certain types of conflict that um aren't um outright classic warfare but you know we're already seeing this a little bit in the cyber mm-hmm. domain um so the point is is that something that was thinkable in the 20th century great power war 
And then for the 21st century, we thought it was unthinkable. Right. I do think it's thinkable again. And, and so we need to mind that. But so the other point, though, is the book is a, is a work of fiction. It, it's meant to be, you know, a fun read, also an informed read. But, you know, people should enjoy it. And if it was a book about a nuclear war, it would be a really short book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but and, and again, to go back to all seriousness, um, there's there's a couple reasons here for why it, you know, plot reveal doesn't go all out nuclear at the start. One is that um, if we look at the history of uh, the, the real Cold War, um, both sides plan not just to fight Thermonuclear. They plan to fight conventional wars, just like the U.S. and China today right. have both kind of war plans. Second, nuclear weapons weren't the firebreak that we thought. There were uh, several episodes that now when we look back in history, we came incredibly close to going to war with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Some were the obvious ones like Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. Other are these ones that you know only later on we figured out – actually in 1983, we almost went to war and no one knew it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is that it's a risk. The final thing that links to the cyber element of this is the questions of in a, in a future you know crisis with the China. Um, you have everything from uh, would a president be willing to press that red button um, in a way that maybe they, you know, how will they look at it differently versus like back in 1960? You, you have the, the president wimping out. And, well, and there's the question. One is it would they be willing to? What are the stakes when you would want to go thermonuclear? But second, with the cyber side is um, – and, and there I went using the cyber side. I shouldn't have said – within the realm of information security, like I hate when people use cyber as mm-hmm. an adjective, but there I went. But the point is now you have something that wasn't a risk back in the Cold War. The idea of someone being inside your networks so that you may not trust the information that you're receiving at the time of crisis or even worse, worried that if you give the orders to press the red button, the other side – nothing will happen and the other side will know that you've done it and they'll just preempt you. And so these are these kind of um, questions that you didn't have back then. So we play with that in the book um, and kind of move it forward some. So I, in closing, I, I have to say, as a uh, former resident of the East Bay of San Francisco, East, San Francisco Bay East uh, uh, Shore, uh, um, there will never be a Palo Alto Athletics team. <laughs> but uh, a great book, uh, very much in the Clancy mode. Uh, uh, Peter Singer, thank you so much. That's the, the name of the book is Ghost Fleet. And while we gave away a lot of Plot points. Uh, I don't think we gave away the central theme uh, of the uh, book. You won't uh, you won't regret reading it uh, just because you listen to this podcast. Uh, uh, thank you to Michael Vadis, Jason Weinstein, Alan Cohn, and Peter Singer for uh, participating. Uh, as a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback, questions, suggestions for interview candidates, topics. Uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a message at two zero two eight six two five seven. This has been Episode 79 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up this fall, we'll be joined by uh, uh, Margie Gilbert, uh, Mike Hayden, Ari Schwartz, uh, and others. And we hope you'll join us each time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.